here anyway, and uh, I want to just follow on and go into Second Peter because it's very much the same theme and very much what we need to understand here in the end time, and that is what Peter is essentially writing about is those who would be dealing with the end time. So he says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Emmanuel of Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Emmanuel the Christ. So he's saying that he and the other apostles in the church uh, were tapped into God and were looking forward to salvation uh, through the righteousness of the Father and of the Son. It isn't our own righteousness that's going to get us anywhere. It's the righteousness of God because he works his salvation in us. We cannot ourselves work our own salvation. So he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Christ our Lord. It requires knowledge to have closeness, to have grace, pardon, and peace. Without knowledge of God, mankind is absolutely lost, uh, living by his own devices and not doing very well at it at that. So we do have to have that contact and that knowledge of God in order to understand God. There are a lot of people who try to worship God, and Christ said, I don't know you, and you don't know me. So uh, knowledge is precious. According as his divine power has given to us all things that are detained unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. So it is by the power of God and his opening our mind through the Holy Spirit that gives us the knowledge we need to guide us and lead us into life and godliness. We are here to become godly. We are here to attain eternal life. That's the whole aim, goal, purpose, and focus of being a human being is to shed this earthly realm and become God someday. Well, that is the purpose here. So he lines that out for us. Whereby are given to us uh, exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Uh, we understand, having the knowledge of God as, as has been imparted to us, that we are to partake of the divine nature, the nature of God. We will not be human, we will not be fleshly anymore. And it's hard for us to grasp what Peter is saying right there in verse 4. Uh, when we become immortal we become changed, we will have escaped the corruption of the human mind. And that is a series of various lusts that we have uh, for power, for wealth, for you, you name it, the human being is after something, and it generally is not godliness, except that God began to show us. So, here is a very good scripture to show that we are to be partakers of the divine nature. We're not just to be floating on a pink cloud somewhere with a beatific vision of God. 
same nature that God has, which is an uplifting nature. Everything is upward and onward, not depressing and backward and negative and down and that which we know is the human frame, of course. So he says, we've been given this opportunity, and hopefully we'll be able to escape this human frame and its limits and its negativity. So he says, besides having been given this knowledge and this opportunity, beside this, giving all diligence, uh, we were spewed out of God's Christ's mouth, because of Laodiceanism, or lukewarmness, uh, which led to all kinds of spiritual problems uh, that lukewarmness simply has as a result of the very state. So he could not abide us as we were. He couldn't stand us, in fact. And when you spew out or vomit out, uh, that is a pretty loud testimony to what you think of what's been in your stomach. I hear, I hear someone talking. Maybe they need a mute. Uh-uh. Um, anyway, he says, give all diligence. So we need to diligently work at some things. And it says then, to add to your faith integrity, virtue, or integrity. Uh, nothing is any good without integrity. Uh, we have to believe what we believe and stand for what we believe and do what we believe. Otherwise, there's hypocrisy and no integrity. Uh, Christ was speaking essentially of integrity when he said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And to tell truth, not lies. That's what integrity is all about, is being willing to stand for truth and good uh, and not waver. So we have this great opportunity, and we need to, to be diligent to have the kind of integrity that we need to have as Christians. And to that integrity, that knowledge. Well, the more we know about God's way, the uh, better chance we'll have of following and doing what God wants us to do. And it is so easy to get caught up in our own human thoughts and ideas and various lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy, that which human nature is made of, that we can so easily forget, even momentarily, God's way when our attention goes somewhere else. So we need the knowledge so that it draws us back to where we're supposed to be. And to knowledge, temperance. Um, To be temperate, to be uh, not up and down and all over the place, but everything with temperance, so that we are doing what we should be doing and not going like a yo-yo back and forth between this world and God. That makes us double-minded and that doesn't work. Uh, And then to temperance, patience. This human life, this walk toward God's kingdom requires patience. Did Christ not say there in Matthew 24, those who endure to the end 
they had to be patient. And I think Habakkuk expressed it very well when he looked at all the horror going on and the prophecies of what God said would happen. And God promised deliverance, and yet it wasn't seeming to happen. So Habakkuk got a little frustrated, and he began to push at God a little bit. And then he kind of caught himself and realized, I better just sort of back off and sit on my watch uh, and let God work this thing out. Uh, we tend to be impatient as human beings. We don't want to wait till God's time. God has given us all the tools we need to endure, to grow, to overcome, and to be like Him. And that really is our only goal and purpose. How soon all this happens really has nothing to do with it. Uh, there are a lot of people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and various ones in the past who lived out their entire life and never received the promises that God had given them because they were promises for the future. And Hebrews 11 even says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises. David spoke of being in the kingdom of God in the Psalms over and over. Though he understood, not many in the Old Testament did, but those patriarchs whom God worked with did understand the ultimate goal. And they understood the promises of eternal life. All Israel didn't, because their covenant was only a physical covenant, covenant of physical blessing if they would comply physically with the law. Now we have the spiritual law, raised the law raised to a spiritual level, and we're supposed to keep it in a spiritual way. So, really, that's all that matters. The ins and outs, the timing of prophecy, is neither here nor there. Now, we can speculate on it, and God gives us some ends so that we can anticipate, as we see things happening, that things are drawing near, just as Christ said, when you, know the, when you see the leaves on the tree, you know that spring is near. So, we can watch, and we should, because it can help us if we know that things are getting close, and therefore it puts pressure on us, time pressure, to grow, to overcome, to change. So those things are good, and God has done it that way. But really what it all amounts to is doing what he says here in verses 5, 6, and 7. If we accomplish those things, it doesn't matter when, it just matters that we will be there. We can get sidetracked and lose our focus, and there are a lot of people who have thought, well, this just goes on and on and on, and it'll never happen, and they just kind of give up. That's why Christ said, those who endure to the end. So it really doesn't matter whether it's the end of this age or the end of your life. You have to endure with the right kind of attitude and with the things Peter's talking about here. And if so, then your salvation is assured. So knowing all prophecy is not the key. Let's go on here. Uh, to patience, godliness. So we wait patiently for God to give us the promises that he has promised, both in this age and in the age to come, because there are some of those promises 
that are promised to occur during the time of the two witnesses and the gathering of the 10%. Uh, and we expect those as well as the ultimate coming of Christ and the change. But we have to be patient even for those things because they will happen in God's time, in his way, when the time is right. All we have to do is be sure that we are in a position that he'll say, yes, I want you there. So, to the patience that we need to be showing, we have to add godliness. To be as much like God as we can in our thoughts, our reactions, our conduct, our words. God doesn't hurt anybody. He doesn't tempt anybody. He does chasten sometimes, but... He is not one to put uh, temptation in front of us. He tempts no man. We are tempted of our own lusts, not by God. He just doesn't act that way. So we need to be careful in how we deal with others as well and be like God in all that we think. And to that godliness, then, brotherly kindliness, kindliness. We love God with all our heart, above everything. That's the first commandment. And then the second is to love our brother. So we have kind, and he even separates it here a little bit. To that kindness, then, uh, you add love. <laughs> so we have to be caring toward others. Uh, we don't have to like everything they do, and we don't have to like necessarily their personalities or their direction they might be going if it's wrong, and we do not have to spend time with them. God says to avoid an angry man, for instance. And he says those who are uh, beset with sin and will not depart from it, but we are to withdraw from them. So we need to be kind. We need to be helpful wherever we can. Uh, we need to love every human being because they are the creatures of God, and God will be their judge. But to love them does not necessarily mean we have to spend a lot of time with them or be around them if their attitude is not godliness. So you, you have to understand the principle. God loves every human on this earth, but boy, does he hate the sin that they are perpetrating. Uh, but he is going to resolve that in the second resurrection in the millennium so that the sinful way that people are living will be changed. So he then says in verse 8, where these things be in you, all the things we just went over, and abound, not just a little bit of it, but a lot of it, if these things be in you in abundance, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Emmanuel. Now, we don't want to be a bare tree. Uh, we don't want to be a tree that does not produce fruit. Christ even used that as an example by withering a tree that produced no fruit. Uh, the leaves didn't make something to eat. It has to have fruit. So God tells us that we need to be fruitful. Uh, spiritually fruitful. We don't want to be cast away as an unfruitful vine or tree. So we have the knowledge of Christ and of the Father. Now will we produce fruit. But he that lacks these things is blind. Now, here we can examine ourselves. 
uh, do it on, in the quiet of when you can. Meditate about it. How much, how diligent are you really? Uh, how much faith? How much integrity? How much knowledge? Are you temperate in things? How patient are you? And how godly? And how much kindness and love? So he says we need to be full of these things and abound. Uh, and if we lack these things, we're blind, spiritually blind, and cannot see afar off. Well, people perish because of lack of vision. And has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So if we have the things that he talks about here above, we are extremely aware that God has shown us a different way and that we are to go that way and not go our old way. But you've been on probably a dirt or a mud road where there's deep ruts. And it's hard to get out of the ruts that you've been in all your life, just as it's hard to get out of the ruts if they're deep in a road. And I found many times that if I might be able to steer my way and jump out of the ruts, it's, you might stay out of the ruts for a little while, but with greasy mud, you tend to fall right back in the same rut that you got out of. And this can happen over and over again. And if the ruts get too deep, you ice center and you can't get out and you can't go anywhere. So the point is, when we become converted, we should get out of those ruts of not only conduct, but emotion and response, the way that our mind has gone all of our lives, and channel it into a different way, to think like Christ thinks, and to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Now, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And if we aren't headed that direction, we will become spiritually blind and we'll forget we were purged, and we'll go right back to the same old ruts and way of thinking that we had before. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you'd go back to Christmas and Easter, though some have, or give up God's holy days and the Sabbath, although some have. So you can, you can give it all up if you're not careful and forget everything you learned. But for most of us, that is not the real danger. The real danger is our old way of thinking. The lust, the vanity, the greed, the jealousy, the covetousness, the uh, the lying, the whatever. Those are our biggest problems that we have to overcome is our thinking process. And some of those ruts and those tendencies can be pretty deep. So you have to be close to God and, and develop an abundance of the above things in order to remember what you're here for. Verse 10, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. So, Second Peter 1, verse 5, 6, and 7 are verses that it would be well for us to review fairly frequently because they review our character, our conduct, our thinking, our emotions are all involved in those things that he talks about here. So he said diligence was the first thing there. 
uh, you got to really pursue these things. And then he reiterates it in verse 10. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Now, people, sometimes when they're offered a chance in life at something uh, that they feel will make them wealthy or better off or whatever, they really, really work hard at it. They become obsessed with accomplishing whatever opportunity and goal has been placed before them. But we're in this for the long race, not for the short haul. It's not necessarily a short race. It's a race uh, till the end. And it's easy to let down on spiritual things and not be diligent. And we can take it for granted. Now, that's what we did in Worldwide Church of God. It began to be taken for granted that we would be in the kingdom of God and that we'd be protected here at the end of the age when uh, the Holocaust breaks out, which it is soon to do. Uh, we had grown somewhat ho-hum about things, and God doesn't like that. That's why we were spewed out. So we would do well to take what Peter is saying here very, very deeply and very seriously and go diligently about pursuing eternal life. What opportunity is greater than that? Human wealth, a fine home, a newer car, or whatever, those are just things. And they're things that do not last and you can't take it with you. The only thing that matters in the long run, and it doesn't matter whether it's health or wealth or anything else, when this life's over, we better have something else to look forward to, or that's the end. That's it. So we want to make our calling and our election sure. Make sure that it does good. Be urgent about it, in other words. And he says if we pursue these things and we do it diligently, we'll never fall. Now, there is a great falling away at the end, he says. We've already seen it in the church great falling away, and it even continues. Uh, it's not all done yet, but there's certainly been a major falling away in the church of God. And there is going to be a falling away of churchianity or Christianity, so-called, as well, and that also is occurring. There's less and less people really great claim Christianity anymore. All these things happen first to the church, then to the world. And we've seen our brothers and our sisters and our family and so many who've departed or, or give it lip service and nothing more. Uh, we can't be there. He spewed us out, told us to repent and to overcome and to be diligent instead of wishy-washy about it. So if we do these things, we will never fall. We don't want to fall. We, we don't. I, I don't like to fall down physically. And we certainly don't want to fall down when we're pursuing a spiritual goal and not be able to get up and accomplish what it is that we're after. So he's giving us a guarantee here that if we'll do what he's talking about, we won't fall. We will accomplish it. We will be there. For so an entrance shall be ministered to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Evangel the Christ. He's giving us the keys here to succeed 
in our Christian life. What more could we need? What greater focus could there be right now? I, I think even in our own little group over the years here since we came out, uh, there have been some who have just simply gotten tired of waiting and thinking all this stuff can't all be. It's not true. It's not happening. It's It's been too long. Uh, and in the in the greater church of God, the same as well. Well, you have to hang on, and not just hang on, you have to diligently overcome. And then you'll have an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. God doesn't begrudgingly let us in. It's his hope and his joy to give us salvation. So here he talks about it in abundance. Verse 12, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. Now, did Peter know about prophecy? Did he know some of the horrible, wretched things that were ultimately going to come on society and the world? Yes, he did. He writes about it in this same book in chapter 3. But he was saying, let's focus on being spiritually mature and being what we ought to be and that's what will usher us into the kingdom, not knowing prophecy. That isn't the key. Now, knowing prophecy is good. But when prophecies are all fulfilled and we don't have love, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we have So he says, I'll always put you in remembrance of these things. I'll remind you, and I'll remind you, and I'll remind you. So sometimes we may sound like a broken record, but it's... It's the things that are important that we often forget to do and need to be reminded. He says, even though you know them, I'm still going to remind you and be established in the present truth. You establish it, you reestablish it, you say it again. Yes, I think it's fitting, as long as I am in this human body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. So... Sermons might seem the same sometimes. See, that's, it's the spirituality that is a problem for carnal human beings. So we need to be reminded regularly what it is that we need to be doing. Do you know it's quite possible to walk out of a Sabbath service having just heard what you need to do and immediately get your mind on the wrong thing? Do you know it's easy to forget by Sunday or Monday or Tuesday what the sermon was even about? Of course you do. Been there, done that. But do we begin to do these things? It isn't so important to remember what was said, but it's important that it become part of you and part of the way you think and act. That's, that's the whole point. Verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Emmanuel of Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's saying, look, people, this isn't something we dreamed up on our own. This isn't something we imagined and just decided we'd teach you so we could get a following because we began to promise you you'd have all kinds of wonderful things and... Why would anyone do something like that? Well, to get their money. That's why they do it. 
and people do do it. Con men, in other words. That's what he's saying. We're not con men. We saw Christ. We saw him ascend to his Father in heaven. We were eyewitnesses. So this isn't some fable we're telling you about. This is the truth. And if he ascended, you can ascend. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Wasn't proud of him, well pleased with him, and said so. And this voice, which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. So when Christ rose to go back to his Father's throne and be there until essentially the end of the age, they saw it. Peter said, we're not feeding you a line of baloney here. This is real. And you can also ascend, meet Christ in the air, and go with him to the Father's throne for your honeymoon. Verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well, but you take heed. As unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day star arrives, arise in your hearts. So he says, look forward. And what is prophecy all about? Prophecy is about looking forward to the things that God has for us in the future. That's the only real reason for prophecy, is to put the carrot before the donkeys, so that it might lead us forward. Uh, the, the prophecies are full of promises of good in the future for us. So they're there to help draw us forward. They are also there to remind us that if we don't go forward, and if we fall behind or fail, we will be punished. So the point of prophecy, again, as I've said many times, is not technicalities and timing. The point of prophecy is you're not doing what you ought to do. You better straighten up. And if you do straighten up, these are the things in, in which you will be blessed. That's the whole purpose of prophecy. It's what prophecy is. Warning and promise. It's what it boils down to. Verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture or of the Scripture is of any private origination. It says uh, interpretation in the uh, King James, but that's not really uh, the right word there to get the meaning across. What he's saying here is we didn't dream this up. That's what he said earlier up there. We didn't, we didn't devise cunning fables. We didn't dream this up. And the prophets that wrote things from the past didn't just dream them up either on their own and just write something down. He says, and he explains that that's the right word to use there in verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying those prophecies were inspired of God. They weren't just things that these men thought up or dreamed up. God moved them to say them. And the proof of that pudding is in the fact that all those prophecies agree with one another. They were given over hundreds of years. They were given to a lot of different men under a lot of different circumstances. 
and they all dovetail perfectly. There are no contradictions there. <laughs> there are a few translation problems and this and that, but, but all those prophecies fit together to form a picture. And the fact that God used so many men over so long a time to not have any contradictions and for them all to agree is a testimony to the power and the mind and the greatness of God. They are true. Now let's uh, move on here to chapter 2. Now, he's given us a very encouraging chapter here in chapter 1 to get our focus right, to be diligent to do what we ought to be doing, and to know that this is the Word of God and that the promises made are there for us. Very promising. Very encouraging. Then in chapter 2, uh, he says, but beware, <laughs> there, there are problems. Chapter 2, he says, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. So he says, it's happened before, and it's going to happen again. He and Paul and James and all the apostles dealt with people like that. Paul mentioned several specifically. Uh, but Peter is projecting, projecting to the end here, even though he thought it was near. Uh, he still says, toward the end, whatever it is, there will be false teachers. And they'll privately bring in damnable heresies, even denying the eternal that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. What is heresy? Heresy is false teaching. It's false doctrine. It's teaching things that are not true. And these people will come in among you. They're false teachers. They're not true prophets of God. They're not true teachers of God. He didn't appoint them, uh, but they ran. They did it anyway, whether he appointed them or not. There are a lot of people in the Church of God today, scattered around the world and here and there and everywhere, who have decided on their own that they are just as qualified, and probably more so, than anyone else, including the ministry, and they can teach themselves. But they bring in damnable heresies, like there's no government in the church, and that we all are totally on our own, and we don't have to listen to the ministry. And yet so many scriptures that say God put the ministry here. That's one of the most damnable heresies there is, because it's at the very core of Satan's attitude is that God will not rule over me, I rule myself. I'll do what I want, and no one will tell me what to do. Uh, that's at the very basis of it. We've been through it before, so I'll not uh, talk more about it here, but that's one of those that comes to the forefront over and over and over again through the generations, whether it was Moses with Korah and Abiram or Ananias and Sapphira with the apostles or many, many other examples in the Bible where let's let's set aside God's minister whom he ordained and appointed and let's do this ourselves. Happens over and over, generation after generation. Verse 2, here's the problem with that. Many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. 
they'll have their own idea, and they'll teach that. But it's pernicious. It's lawless. It's the wrong direction. It's not the way of truth. So you you teach something that's true that comes from the Bible, and they teach something different. It fits this category. Nobody likes to think of themselves as fitting this category, but it says there will be those, and they'll be self-deceived, thinking they have truth when they don't. Verse 3, And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. Covetousness essentially is greed. They'll become greedy for things that are not theirs, or that they should not have, that they do not own, and claim them. And they'll lie, feigned words, lying words, to say what they think is theirs when it's not. Have you ever seen anything like that happen? Trying to get money, land, whatever, make merchandise of you, try to get from you. Uh, this judgment now of a long time lingers not and their damnation slumbers not. So this is an end-time phenomenon that he said would occur, and is occurring, but their judgment isn't far behind because the end of this is all coming down soon. And God is not going to put up with false oaths and lying, false witness. Uh, that's an abomination to him. Verse 4, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell or to the chains of Tartaru, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So if God is chained off and on, uh, some of the demons, uh, spirit beings who rebelled against him with Satan, uh, sometimes he's restrained them. In fact, he has to restrain Satan continually. He has been prison. He's allowed at the throne of God until that time when he's cast down in Revelation 12 and not allowed to go up there and accuse us anymore. So he's not restrained in that sense, but he's restrained uh, right now from destroying all mankind, or there would not be one human being left. He would have killed us all. And he would have killed Job if God had allowed it. That's why God warned him specifically you can do anything else, but do not kill him. So God is the one in control and who restrains and holds people back. But he says, if he judged those spirit beings, where do we stand? And he didn't spare, verse 5, the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth or eighth generation, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So God is only going to spare a few here at the end as well. He's going to have 10% of those who were called that will be elected to come and build a temple and to build Jerusalem. And that's all. That isn't many out of nearly 7 billion people that probably inherit the earth today. Just a few thousand, maybe 7 to 12 would be my best guess of what are right in there. Not very many. And in Noah's day, he only saved eight. And he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example to those that after should live ungodly. 
So their primary uh, problem in Sodom and Gomorrah was sexual abuse, particularly homosexuality. And God hates that, and he destroyed them for it. And now we have a nation and a world bent on becoming as homosexual as it can. To accept it, it's politically unacceptable to say anything against it. But God does. I don't harp on it a lot. I don't know of any that are within the hearing of my voice here that uh, have that problem. But at the same time, God uses it as an example here of something that he will not put up with. And delivered just lot, vexed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. I think it's an ironic thing that Lot didn't, as much as it vexed him to see what was going on around him every day, and he hated the sin, uh, he still didn't want to see those cities destroyed. He even bargained with God on how many people were there that would be righteous. And there weren't, there weren't any. Now it says in Jeremiah that we would save our country, that we would do anything we could for it, if we could, because we love our country. But on the other hand, it is an ungodly society today, and God has already said, I'm going to destroy it. Don't even pray for this people. They will not repent. Uh, destruction is coming. So we're warned not to even bargain or ask God because this judgment is set. We're not going to repent. Our leaders are not going to repent. We're going into captivity. So it vexes us in a way because we love our country. I'm sitting right now in a, oh, such a lovely place with the tall pine trees and the, the river running right beside me. It's a beautiful place, uh, as long as there are people around. But then when you go into the city or around people, you begin to hear and see all kinds of things that aren't right. So he vexed his soul, and he barely got out of there with his daughters, and his wife even looked back. She couldn't handle it and turned into a pillow of salt. Verse 9, the Eternal knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished. So God is going to sort out sift out who is what and who is who and who is righteous and who is not and he knows how to deliver us from temptation and he knows how to reserve judgment on those who will be evil and will not be uh, righteous verse 10 but chiefly them now here's his judgment is chiefly upon or his focus more on being sure that certain ones get punished. Them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. So people who have various lusts that are unclean things to God, contrary to his way and his morality and his laws, those God is particularly concerned about and one of the biggest things, then, is those who despise government. And we've had that for decades in the Church of God, and my 
to my knowledge. I've seen it over and over. Where God has set up something, God is building something, and you have those who will try to destroy it. They despise the government that God has put there. And that has happened throughout history. Every time God sets something up, there are those who think they know better or could do better than the ones God put there. <laughs> That's God's business. So despising government is something that God, one of the chief things that he is holding in judgment. Presumptuous are they. So anyone who does such and despises government is being presumptuous because God set things up as he wished. Paul had enemies. Peter had enemies. Paul even named a few who had done him great wrong. Uh, so, and Peter put Simon Magus in his place, trying to buy the Holy Spirit. They despise the government that God set up through the apostles. Uh, many despise the government that God set up in Herbert Armstrong, and yet he did a great calling work and did a great work for God. He didn't know everything, and he wasn't destined to stay till the end, but God used him for a purpose, to call many. Now he is choosing a few. But he despised Herbert Armstrong's government and thought he was unqualified, and on and on and on it went. And that attitude has not changed. That attitude will be around till the very end. But believe me, God will deal with it. He even says, the presumptuous, and God equates that to witchcraft. Witchcraft and Satanism are the same thing. Satan is the leading witch in the universe. <laughs> His ways are pernicious and against God. So God hates presumption. says it's the same thing as Satan worship. And anyone who despises governments is the same as Satan, because Satan despised it first. So presumptuous are they, self-willed, I will do what I want, you're not going to tell me what to do. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, those whom God has appointed. Now, are you afraid to speak evil of those whom God has put in various offices? Really now, are you? It's very easy for us to speak evil of those who are in office. God even says that he places the physical leaders of the world there. We must be careful to respect, as Romans 13 says, those who have been put in office. There in Daniel 4, God says he puts over the nations the basest of men. So our nation is about to be destroyed, and you can be sure, you could bet your bottom dollar, in other words, that one of the basest, worst people on earth is now in charge of our nation, and someone equally as bad or worse is about to go in. God says that. That's what he does. But we need to be very careful how we speak, and sometimes I think we're not careful about. I know I've said things I shouldn't have said. We respect the office, but we don't have to like or accept the evil that is there. We just have to accept the fact that God put people over this nation of Israel. We are in captivity. 
We need to understand that. There's a Babylonian government in Washington, D.C. that is contrary to God in every way, and it rules over the nation of Ephraim that we live in here. Uh, but God has put us in this captivity because of the way we have lived. And the church was existing within this captivity for 70 years, from the 30s to the 90s, when it was destroyed, just as uh, the early New Testament church was in the captivity of Rome during the time that it existed, <laughs> from the early 30s A.D. until right around 100 A.D. when it disappeared. So it was in captivity, and we have been in captivity. God is offering us liberty and a place of safety if we will serve and obey him. And to come out of Babylon, uh, not get out of our nation, but as Michael Ford says, to come out of the city and go dwell in the wilderness or the open field, even to Babylon, and there God will deliver us and redeem us. So we have to accept that God has placed those people there as our slave drivers or our leaders, and we need to be very, very careful. Aren't we, even where as Christians, were they not warned that they should serve their masters well, even those who were presumptuous, who were uh, angry, unmerciful, unkind people, that they were to treat them with respect? So we need to treat the offices with respect, even though people may be corrupt. And God is going to, we can't remove the government of this nation. We shouldn't even want to. It's not our job. God's going to do it. That's his job. I'm, I'm not joining any patriot movement. I'm not going to lead any rebellion or revolution or anything like that. I'm not going to be part of one. That isn't what I'm here for. I'm here to obey and serve God and let God take care of the problems. And the same is true in the church. You may think so-and-so isn't qualified. Well, that's God's call to make, not yours. And he's speaking here, Peter, I think more specifically of those within us, leaders who are teachers who raise themselves up privately. He's not talking about the nation in general, though I've discussed that in general here. But it's, it's both. It's those who have been put in spiritual places of authority and those who have been put in physical places of authority in terms of the nation. <laughs> God has already destroyed a lot of the ministry. And he's said three will fall in one month there in Zechariah 11. So he's not done yet. But that's his business, business not yours or mine. It's not our place to remove or to put down or to speak evil of what God has put there. That's his business. He can remove them if he so chooses. And in some cases he has. And in some cases he will some more. But let him do his job, and let us do our job. Verse 11, Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might than humans, bring not railing accusation against them before the eternal, so, whatever offices God has placed, spiritually or physically, on this earth, the angels of God respect what God is doing here, even though he may, they may see 
the foibles and the mistakes and the problems and the sins of people, they don't dare speak against those whom God has put in authority. So if they won't, <laughs> and they're holy righteous angels of God, how can we justify that kind of accusation? <laughs> but these, these humans we're speaking of, who set themselves up, not ordained of God, but set themselves up as teachers. But these, as natural brute beasts. What is a brute beast? Well, a, a domestic kitty cat is a pretty nice beast. But a brute beast is more like a lion or a tiger or uh, an angry bear. Uh, these, these are people who can hurt. <laughs> They're made to be taken and destroyed. Speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. This is speaking of human beings. This is speaking of people that you and I have known or do know. And God says if they persist in doing what Peter's talking about here, they will perish. And in their own corruption. And the key things that he says, chiefly, or immoral, immoral things of the flesh and despising government. A two-pronged issue that God emphasizes. Any ungodliness or any false doctrine or heresy, of course, is wrong. But God says, these are new things that I, that I really focus on. So we need to consider that and be very, very careful. Verse 13, And shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. They'll just be, they'll be treated like rioters and revolutionaries. Maybe they aren't out physically causing riot and revolution, but that's the way they'll be treated, because of the rebellion and the riot of emotion that they expel. Spots they are and blemishes. We're, we're to become unspotted from the world of Satan. But he says anyone who has problems with government or, or uh, the lusts of the flesh uh, or blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings, oh, I'm a true teacher, what I have is true, I cannot uh, debate any preacher because I know the Bible better than they do. Well, sorry, but that's not true. Deceiving themselves while they feast with you. So they will even be in the church of God. Having eyes full of adultery, not just physical, but spiritual adultery. Uh, taking on the attitudes and approach of Satan is spiritual adultery. And despising government is an aspect of Satan, who despised the government of God way back. And God has set government. Human beings are not perfect. I'm not. No one is. We're working toward maturity and perfection, but none of us is. So you can find something to pick at if that's your attitude with anybody. But God put them there for a purpose. And Moses was flawed. So were all the apostles. Oh, wretched man that I am, said Paul. The Joshua, Zechariah 3, at the end time, had filthy garments that God cleans up. 
So it doesn't matter which iteration of the past we're talking about, the present or the future. People will feast with you who despise government and have lustly, vain, carnal approaches. And God hates that with a passion. They can't cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. In heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. Well, someone who lies about whether they have a, 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 a let's say, a lease for, uh, for owner, ownership, when it doesn't say that at all, it's an absolute, outright, outright fabricated lie. It's a covetous practice trying to take land that God has reserved for his people to come to into their own hands because they don't trust the leadership that God put there. Can it get any plainer than that? Cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosar, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. They put money ahead of righteousness. They'll lie, and some will say, well, I don't believe that, but you're part of the lawsuit that says that. That makes you part of it. So people need to repent before they are destroyed because of their pernicious ways. So Balaam loved greed and envy and jealousy and pain. He wanted to own. But was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumbass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. There shows you how God thinks of someone who gets greedy and tries to use godly things for personal gain. He'll have a donkey talk to them. These are wells without water. A dry hole doesn't accomplish much. Clouds that are carried with a tempest don't drop rain. They're just blown around up in the sky. To whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. Not speaking of the demons here, but the third resurrection and death and gain of fire. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. We came out of lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, and acquisition and materiality, didn't we? And if anybody will take you back to that, you might have cleanly escaped from it, but now people are taking you back to what you used to be. God says you can't do that. Dog can't return to his vomit or a hog to a wallow and come back out of it. Verse 19, they'll lead you back into that while they promise them liberty. You'll have freedom, you'll own your land, you'll do what you want to do, nobody will tell you what to do, and you can get rid of that overlord that you have. You'll have liberty. They themselves are the servants of corruption, lying and false witness and false oaths and evil imaginations are corruption. 
for of whom a man is overcome of the same as he brought in bondage. So they get chained to greed and avarice and self and gain. For after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the eternal and savior Emmanuel, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Once you understand truth, and then you go back to doing things carnally and selfishly in Satan's way, you're going to be worse off than if you'd have never even known the truth. For it had been, he says that here, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them and claim lying things. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Any who turn back to lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, and those things that we came out of, and deceive themselves into thinking it's righteousness, or like a dog licking its own vomit, you've seen that, or a sow returning to the filthy wallow that's full of excrement that she likes to wallow in. We cannot go there, brethren. So Peter gave us a great deal of hope and encouragement and strength in chapter 1. If we will do those things, uh, our salvation is assured. But if there arise those who set themselves up, to say what is right and what is wrong, to set themselves up as teachers, and you allow yourself to be led astray by them, you are going into the lake of fire. It's scary, but Peter just lays it out there. And we cannot allow ourselves to be influenced by those who would lie and not tell the truth and claim things that are not theirs. But, Paul, but Peter said it would happen just like Balaam did it. So let us be very, very careful. Let us focus on chapter 1 and beware of chapter 2. So we've used up our time for today. This is a good place to stop. I'll talk to you again next week, God willing.